word, I'd ask that you would please take them in hand. Turn them with me once again to the little book of Jude. Um, if you're uh, new with us here uh, and are maybe not familiar exactly where Jude is, uh, go to the back of your Bibles, the book of Revelation, and just go over one book. Um, um, it should only be about one or two pages. It's very brief, just one chapter and just 25 verses. But those 25 verses are packed full with goodness. So uh, today's passage is going to be Jude verses 3 and 4. Before I read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired, life-giving word, let us pray and ask that his blessings might be added to it. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, how good it is that you have not left us in the darkness of our sin, but instead have instead given us your word, which is a light unto our feet. It is a light unto our past, Father. We would ask that through the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, that that very light might shine into the darkest recesses of our minds and our hearts, that it might find the skeletons in the closet, that it might shed light upon them, and in that light they might be scorched. So, Father, would you please mortify the sin in our hearts through your word. But, Father, in its place, build up the image of Christ for the sake of his name and for the sake of his glory. We ask these things. Amen. So hear now the word of God, Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. This ends a reading of God's holy and errant word. May he write its truth upon our hearts. Back when I was in high school, uh, to say that I was a good student would be an outright lie. Um, I was not a good student. I was lazy. I didn't like studying. I certainly didn't like homework. Um, most classes didn't really interest me. There are some things that I would learn in science class that would be somewhat appealing. Math never appealed to me in the slightest. Um, but if there was one class where I could do halfway decent, it was always history. And it wasn't because I worked very hard at it. It was just that I really liked the stories, mostly because most of the stories centered around some kind of war, some kind of, of battle. And I think maybe it was just the boy in me. I loved war. I loved hearing the stories of the honor and the glory and the fighting, and the, even the blood. And like I said, I'm a boy. That kind of stuff really appealed to me. But something that you learn in history as you study the history of, of warfare and fighting is that not all wars are exactly alike. There are some wars that are fought for honorable and noble causes, but there are also some that are fought for needless and senseless causes. And it's when it's fought for a senseless cause that, that war, rather than being containing the, the glory and honor, things like that, instead just contains despair, guilt. And we're left wondering, why? What exactly have we been fighting for? One such war, uh, one such war was given the name the Pastry War. 
and this is going to go in the direction that you're, you, you probably figure it out. In the 1800s, 18, I think it was 1828, uh, there was a series of riots in Mexico City, and there's a lot of property and businesses that were destroyed. One such business was a pastry shop owned by a French pastry chef. Well, when his business was destroyed, he sued the Mexican government for the cost to rebuild his rebuild his business, and the Mexican government just shot it down. They said, right, we're not going to do that. And so he did what any good citizen of the French Empire would do. He wrote a letter to the French government asking them to interfere. Well, for 10 years, his request went unnoticed, unheard, with no response to it, which would make sense. It's just a pastry chef on the other side of the world. Well, in 1838, for reasons that are not altogether clear, his letter made it to the desk of King Louis. Now, King Louis did not like the Mexican government. He had loaned them a lot of money, and they were not very good about paying it back. And so he decided to take up the calls of this pastry chef, and he ordered the Mexican government to pay this guy 600,000 pesos, which is the equivalent of about $32,000. Now, it may not sound like a lot, but when you adjust it for inflation, that comes out to be just a hair over $1 billion. $1 billion for a pastry shop. Well, obviously, the Mexican government thinks that's a little bit ridiculous, and they refuse to pay. So what does King Louis do? He sends a naval fleet packed full with Marines to the city of Veracruz. He lays siege to it. He shells it for, for months and months and months on end until finally the Mexicans give in, and they pay the pastry chef $1 billion for his pastry shop. Now, that sounds humorous. You can kind of roll your eyes about it. But then you realize somewhere between 250 and 300 men lost their lives fighting that war. 300 sons, fathers, husbands did not come home because they were fighting a war over macaroons. That is, that's, there's no glory in that. There's no honor in that. That war is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. If we, don't under, if we don't have a good cause to fight for, then what's the point of fighting? The Bible is full of language describing the Christian life as being one of warfare, of being a battle. We even have the armor of faith that Paul commands us to put on. It's because the Christian life is a battle. Well, what's the cause we're fighting for? What is, is, is it noble? Is it a good cause? Because if we lose sight of the cause... We will lose the motivation to even take up arms in the first place. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to see what is exactly the cause that we are fighting for. We're going to see two things. First, we're going to see that we fight for the truth. The second thing that we fight for is going to be the honor of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We fight for the truth and we fight for the honor of of our king. You see the fighting uh, first being taking place there with the word contend. Paul, uh, Paul, Jude here in verse 3 says that he is appealing to this church, which by the way, don't know exactly where this church is located at. It's probably somewhere around Judea. It's probably more of a, uh, uh, a Jewish congregation. But nonetheless, whoever the church is, he's writing to them, appealing them to contend for something. Now, in the Greek, that word contend means to, to agonize, to strive wholeheartedly up to the point of exhaustion 
for the sake of a noble cause. Well, what is the noble cause that, that Jude is causing them to fight for? He says they're to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's it. What are we fighting for? The truth. And what is the truth? The faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Essentially, the word of God. But not just words on pages. What the word teaches us. Doctrine. Theology. The doctrines of grace. The doctrines of God. The doctrines of Christ. All of these things. This is what he is telling us to contend for. Not mere words, but doctrine. Now, already, the world hears that. Even not just the world. People within churches hear that I'm supposed to take up arms to, to, to languish in this warfare because of doctrine, belief. Is that really what matters? See, our, our, our society, or even, or even our evangelical culture, prefers to think of it as what's really important is sincerity. It's not really what you believe, it's just that you believe it sincerely. So long as you have the best of intentions, well, that's all that's really going to be required of you. And that's what should be celebrated. Now, let me just say, no one appreciates sincerity more than I do. I love sincerity, but here's the thing. It is very possible to be sincerely wrong. And what happens when we are, what happens when we put sincerity at the top of the heap, where we look at that as being the most important part of what we do and what we believe as Christians, that we are just sincere people. Well, you don't have to be a Christian to be sincere in the first place. Anybody can be sincere, and that's the problem. When sincerity is put on the top of the heap, what we end up doing is introducing subjectiveness into our doctrine and into the truth. And what is subjectivity? When you believe in something subjective, we, we, what we mean by that is usually we, we put it in the realm of like feelings or of, of taste. But is everybody's taste the same? No. Everybody's taste is different. It varies. And so when we make truth subjective, what we end up doing is we end up making it a shadow with no real substance. We end up making it weightless, a target that is forever moving, a destination that can never be reached, and as soon as one sets out, sets out on his way to find it, he ends up losing the road. Truth all of a sudden becomes something that is, that is unattainable. And because it is unattainable, it, we end up just making it whatever fits our fancy. And what this means is character, the, 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 that truth ends up taking on the character of fallen men. And this is not good. Just look at the world around us. Truth, what is true today was not true yesterday. It keeps changing and changing and changing and changing. And sometimes I don't even think this is what the world is trying to do. I can remember back in the early 2000s when the debate over same-sex marriage was first kind of going through the halls of Congress and things like that. Uh, I can remember some Christian, apologi uh, Christian apologists saying that if we, if, we, if, we, if we say that all that marriage is is an agreement between two consenting parties founded upon the feelings of love, well, that, what that ends up doing is it ends up opening a door to really any type of union. Incest, 
pedophilia? So long as two people are agreeing and they really love each other, well, then everything's okay. And, 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 and the other side said, well, that's ridiculous. That's not what we're arguing for. I'm not arguing for incest. But what do you see going on in the world? You see actual activism, people wanting, like, crying out, saying, we should just get rid of these, 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 these societal norms that, that, that outlaw things like incest or even pedophilia rights. Like, who are, who are you to tell me that like, we can't do this? All of a sudden, truth has just been obliterated because it was placed in the hearts and the ever-changing emotions of man. The heart is misleading the heart is corrupt. If, that, if, if truth comes from the heart of a sinful man, then brothers and sisters, we are doomed. But it's not just in the moral realm that we need to be worried about this. In fact, even more importantly than the moral realm, there is the realm of faith. When, when, when Jude here says faith, he's not talking about the feeling or even the act of faith. What he is saying is, what he is saying is the truth, the faith once and for all delivered for the saints, it has a content to it. It has a substance to it. It's not wishy-washy. It is not subjective. And so what ends up happening when we end up denying the faith, when we end up not contending for it, when it gets corrupted? He tells us there in verse 4, he says, it is a denial of our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say about those who deny him? Matthew 10, Whoever denies me before man, I will deny him before the Father. To make, sub, to make truth subjective is extremely dangerous. And we don't just do that by outright denying doctrine, but we can even do it by being indifferent to the doctrine, by failing to, to place the eternal importance that is upon what we actually and truly believe as it is revealed to us in the word of God. But a lot of people today miss this. They believe that they are saved by faith in something that is nothing more than a, a title or something that is nothing more than a name. The faith has a substance, and that substance is a person. And do you have a relationship with names? Do you have relationships with titles? You do not. You would think it very strange if I brought a man up here and said, this is my best friend, Mr. So-and-so. You would find that very odd, wouldn't you? But many people in our churches today do the very same thing with the name of Jesus and the title Lord and Christ and God. They use the words, but they have no clue what they mean. And yes, it is true that there is that that there is more to a relationship than just knowledge. But there's certainly, but it's certainly not less than knowledge. Knowledge is needed. You can say to me, "I I believe in God. Who is that? What is he like? Who is this? Who is this God that you speak of? Is he good? What is his character? Is he sovereign? Is he unwavering? Who is he?" Well, he is Jesus Christ. Well, who is that? What is he like? What is his nature? What is his character? Is he good? Is he just a good example? Or is he God? Do we know who we are talking about? 
And like I said, yes, there is more than just knowledge when it comes to our relationships. But it is certainly not less than knowledge. Knowledge is required. The call to be doctrinally sound, I want you to listen very carefully to this. The call to be doctrinally sound is not a call to become heady or an academic or to engage in things that are a waste of time for busy people. The call to be doctrinally sound is a call to come to the feet of your heavenly Father and to learn about the heroic tales of His salvation for His distressed children, about how His holy character prevented Him from merely passing over their sins, but how His love for them would not allow Him to ever condemn them. So... In mercy, he sent his only begotten son into the world that he might not merely give us an example of how to be right with God, but that his son might actually make us right before God by actually atoning for our sins and by actually removing wrath from us and actually making us the beloved children of his own father in heaven. And we can trust that his work, the work of the son was actually effective because he was fully man and fully God, light of light, very God of very God, yet born of a woman able to sympathize with us in every weakness and able to save us to the uttermost. Everything that I just said is doctrine. Every word of it. And if we sacrifice the truth of doctrine, the truths of this word, then you know what else we were putting on the altar? What else we were sacrificing? Not just heady ideas, but every benefit that those ideas give to us. We sacrifice our joy and our hope in suffering. We sacrifice our assurance. We sacrifice our peace. And ultimately, we sacrifice our faith. Because the faith that Jude is talking about here, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints is not a subjective feeling or just heady idea. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints is truth. And it was delivered to us not because it is unimportant, not so that we can be indifferent to it, but because the truth of God is life itself and that it, in its light we might find all of the joys of heaven he didn't reveal it because he was just needed some needed to fill time you require it you need it and for these false teachers to come in and to corrupt the truth to pervert it and to make it something else it's not just to rob god of his glory but to rob, your, to rob you of yours. For your glory is not detached from the glory that belongs to God. And so what do we do? What do we respond to that? Like, if I say that I love the truth, that I love the scriptures, what is that going to look like practically? I think a good example of what this looks like is the prophet Hosea. See, I don't know if it's been a while since you've read through the book of Hosea, but the Old Testament prophets were very often asked to do some very odd things. I mean, just read Jeremiah. There's lots of, bless his heart, he had to do strange things. 
the strangest thing that probably any prophet had to do was Hosea. God came to him and he says, Hosea, I want you to live your life as a living parable. I want you to live your life in a way that is going to express in the sight of the people what my life is like. God, God is saying to him, I have covenanted myself with a rebellious people. I am their God, and yet they keep chasing after these idols, these false gods, but I love them. And so this is what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go out there, and I don't want you to just marry a woman. I want you to love that woman, but she's going to be a prostitute, and she's going to leave you over and over and over and over and over again. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to chase her and pursue her over and over and over and over again. Why? Because you love her. And that's what I do with Israel. They run away from me. They whore after the idols of this world. And I pursue them over and over again. And Hosea, you're going to do the same thing. Pursuit. Love will always pursue the apple of its eye, will always pursue the thing that is beautiful to it, will chase after it because it must have it. It must have it. What is your relationship like with truth? Do you pursue it? Do you chase after it over and over, day in and day out? Do you, when you come into church today, was it to be with your friends? Was it to be with your family? Was it to talk about what happened this weekend, what the week was like? Or did you come here in pursuit of the truth? Check your motives. What is the cause of your war? Why are you fighting this battle? Are you even fighting a battle? These are important questions pursuing the truth, become so enamored with it that it seems to become as much a part of you as your own beating heart. Let it be written upon you. Chase it in your daily, daily lives. Read the word. Read a book about the word. Listen to sermons. Come in here and listen to these sermons. Pursue the truth. Why? Because it is God's truth. And who is God? He is the one who loves you who has pursued you from the ends of the earth. Because when we read Hosea, in that story, you're not Hosea. You're Gomer the prostitute, running and running and running, and God is Hosea, chasing, chasing, chasing. So pursue him. Pursue the truth. As Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And while the truth that we confess is to be known and to be loved, it doesn't just remain in the mind, doesn't just remain in the heart as a, as a, as a feeling, as, as being something that, that tickles the intellect. The truth of God is something that fills the mind and overflows into every corner of our lives. We believe and cherish and love an objective truth. And we live in accordance to that truth in objective ways. We believe in an objective truth and we obey it in objective ways. Once again, 
just as we cannot mold the truth to fit what we would like to be true, we also cannot form our conduct to fit into the mold of the world. If it is the grace, if it is grace that has formed us, this grace Jesus Christ into his mold. And this is the second thing that we are going to fight for. The image, the image of our king. And we fight for the honor of his name. Let's begin, since we've been talking about doctrine, let's talk about a doctrine real quick. The doctrine of, of, of justification. This is a common one. Um, if you're Protestant, doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, you know something about justification. We are justified by faith alone. But do we really know what that means? It's come to my attention as, as being a teacher that a lot of people think that, that somehow like that we are that in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, that we that we, we need we need some we need to do something righteous. And so it's not the law, so faith itself is the righteousness by which God looks at and says, Oh, he had faith, therefore I can be reconciled with him. Therefore I don't have to be I don't have to be vengeful, I don't have to pour wrath out upon him. He has faith, that is good enough. But here's the truth. Faith is not what justifies you. Faith is the instrument that lays hold to what justifies you. And that is the life and the death of Jesus Christ. It is only the instrument that reaches into the fire of Christ's condemnation and pulls out all of its benefits. That's what faith does. You are justified. You are acquitted. You are accounted righteous in the sight of God because of you are in union with with Christ. And when he was condemned, you were condemned. And when he lived righteously, you lived righteously. And when you stand before the throne of God, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see me. He sees Jesus because you are really in union with him. But this union is not merely before the judgment seat of God. It is also in your pew seat. It is in your car seat when you go home. It is at your dinner table when you get home. It is in your easy chair when you're sitting there just watching TV and just taking it easy. Wherever you are, there is one who is in union with Christ. Anytime you see a Christian passing on the street, there goes a little Christ, one who is in union with him. Now, what does that make us think about our sin? You see, when a Christian sins, it is a far more concerning thing when somebody of the world sins. For when a Christian sins, we bring Christ along with it to us. The honor of Christ is on the line in this war that we fight. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith actually connects this as a motivation for doing good works. It says that we do do works to stop the mouth of the adversary. That Satan come, that Satan that, that that Satan comes when we sin, and he starts condemning not only us but also the name of Christ. And I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to atheists who, when he asked them, "Well, why don't you believe? It used to be in the church, but you're not in the church anymore. Why don't you believe?" The first thing, well, hypocrisy within the church. Now, on one hand, I look at that and I'm like, I think you're just looking for a convenient excuse. But there is some truth in that. I mean, just look at the history of the church. And by history of the church, I don't mean go back a thousand years. 
the past the past year, the past five years? What are the things that you turn on the news and hear about going on in the church? Domestic abuse, affairs, hiding domestic abuse, pastors, elders, sessions, abusing their power and abusing the sheep that are put under their care? That doesn't just look bad on the people who do it. That looks bad on the church itself. That looks bad on the name of Christ. We drag the name of, whenever we sin, we drag the name of Christ through the muck and mire of our sin with us. Here in Jude, he says that these false teachers who have crept in unnoticed, he says that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. But the word here for pervert means to change. They made it something else. The grace of God, whatever, whatever it is, it is not sensuality. It is not chasing after the desires of the flesh, but those things are contrary to Christ. Christ did not, in his life, did not chase after the desires of the flesh. What is the song that we sing? Man of sorrows, what a name. That is not chasing after sensuality. That is not chasing after, after, after hedonism, after filling the flesh with pleasure and pleasure and pleasure. No, 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 no. But the carnal mind, loves that the carnal mind looks looks just right before its face and says well that will bring me pleasure in the here and now and that's what it chases after but real grace produces a god-centered christ likeness as it causes the person to seek out and to be obedient to the eternal truth of god the battle for the truth doesn't stop with the mind it doesn't stop with your understanding it doesn't stop with your confession it continues on to our hands and to our feet in this war that we fight we do not use swords or guns those things will not foil our enemy we fight instead with the spirit as he renews our minds in accordance with the truth and, in, and renews us in our whole being as he renews our wills to seek after the honor uh, to honor the faith, to tr the truth of the grace of God with our actions, our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. Why is that? What does Jude call Christ here? Our master. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, but our enemy would see the truth shrouded in darkness and the name of Christ dishonored among the nations. What about us? What would we see happen to the truth? What would we see happen to the name of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us? What would we have happen? What would we use our minds for? What would we use our mouths for? What would we use our bodies for? For the sake of the one whose body was broken on our account and not his own. What do we do with this? I want to finish this morning by looking at three points of application in this battle. This battle for truth and this battle against sin. First of all, I want you to look at where Jude locates the enemy. In a battle, knowing where the enemy is, pretty important. Where's, where's this enemy? He's not in the world. He's not in the palace. He's not in the White House. 
on the Capitol. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed. In. I think John makes the same point in his first epistle when he speaks of the Antichrist. We think of the Antichrist as it's a lot, that's something out there. And First John, who, by the way, also wrote Revelation, he says that the, that, the, that the one who denies that Christ has come in the flesh, the one who denies the humanity of Christ, he is Antichrist. That's not something out there in the world. Those are false teachers in our midst. False teaching is a Trojan horse. It looks good on the outside. It says, hey, God's gracious. He'll forgive you. Just do what you like. Hey, whatever it feels like. If that's who you think you are, then go ahead and live that. It's wrong. It's wrong to have to limit yourself in any way. God wouldn't have that. That's a Trojan horse. And you know what that Trojan horse is filled with? Satan's armies. Guard yourself. Guard yourself with the truth of the word. Because I, I, I fear what's going on out there in the world. But I am convicted because I should be a lot more concerned with what goes on in the kingdom of God, what is taking place in his church. Guard yourself standing on the truth, the scriptures. But there's a warning there as well. What does he say about those false teachers? Those designated for destruction. First of all, God's not caught off guard when it comes to false teaching. He knows it. He sees it. And he hears it. And what waits on the other side? His wrath, death, destruction, and hell. It is a warning. Do not allow your indifference to make you a Trojan horse. Be sound. Be people of the book. Be people of the word. Be people who love and pursue the truth, lest you come under that same condemnation that came in the days of Jude. Secondly, when we are tempted to obey the false teachers and to chase the pleasures of the flesh, Remember sin's end. Remember sin's end. By end, I mean the result of sin. Satan's very good at what he does. And what he does, he does does two things. First of all, he makes righteousness look bitter, hard, difficult, like a chore that you have to do. But But with sin, he does the opposite. He makes it look sweet delicious. But as anyone who is the temple of the Holy Spirit can tell you that on the back end of sin, it is not sweet. It is bitter. When Satan, pre- when Satan presents the temptation to sin as being sweet, it is only a candy-coated pill of cyanide. It is poison to the soul of the Christian. He makes it appear sweet and lovely when it is before us. But once sin has been pursued by the one who is the temple of the Spirit, it tastes terribly bitter. And Satan then comes with his accusations and his guilt, saying, you're not worthy to be a child of God. Sin will darken and dampen even the brightest Christian. 
fire. Remember its end. It promises, it promises the world, but takes away from you everything. Be mortifying sin, or it will be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Remember its end. And then lastly, remember sin's end. It's the same thing I just said, but I mean something very different. I do not mean the result of sin. I mean for you to remember the place where sin met its demise, the cross of Christ. As I, as I prayed earlier today, there's this idea that somehow if we want people to be more obedient, we need to put off the preaching of the cross and just highlight people's wills, people's motivation. They're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not the theology of the New Testament. Read 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, they got a sanctification problem, a big one. There are people doing awful things in that church. You know what Paul does for the first 10 chapters? He preaches the gospel to them. Why? Because they have forgotten the gospel. Cling to the cross. Let me end with a quote from the Puritan Thomas Brooks on this point. He says, sin shall, not die, sin shall die a long and agonizing death in the soul of the Christian. It will not die quickly, but it will die in agony. It is like a tree with a gash to its root. It may flourish and produce leaves for a time, but it is secretly dying. Christ has given sin a mortal wound by his cross, and you have been crucified there with him. So cheer up, O weak soul, cheer up, O weak Christian, for certainly sin that is thus slain can never provoke Jesus Christ to issue you a bill of divorce. Ah, that all the weak Christians would be like the bee, to abide long upon the sweet flowers blooming from the branches of Christ's cross. Do you want to, do you want to see sin put to death? View in your mind the place where it met its end and pursue it. Pursue its mortification through the death and your faith in Jesus Christ. So when you are beset with the temptation to sin, abide upon where it was slain, drink in the sweetness of the truth of the grace of God, and pursue the honor of your king who gave himself for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is truth, your word is life, and your word is light. For Father, your Son, Jesus, has told us that he is the light of men, that he is the light of sinful men. Father, I pray that what we have just read through and talked about together, that it might be light, and that it might shine into our hearts and that, and that it might cause us to reproduce the light. That we might become like the one who shines upon us, your son, Jesus Christ. Would you do this for us, please, Father? We love you, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now let's